Good morning, church. Good morning. When we started Daniel, I said, do not worry. We'll be in some narrative before we get into the heart of the prophecy. Church, the training wheels come off. <laughs> and here we are in the prophecy. Don't lose heart. Daniel 7 is one of the most important chapters in all of the Bible. And my job this morning really is to communicate to you the weight of what Daniel saw. I want, I want you to look at verse 28 with me, this last verse. Daniel has this dream, and it says, At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me, and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. He says, I saw this dream, and when, I, when it ended, I just felt pale. And I was alarmed, not because he, he recognized God was in control. He saw a lot of great things, but he just felt the, the weight of what was happening. And that's my job here today, really, to show you just how important this passage is, because this passage spans all of redemptive history. He's not, his face does not grow pale because it's bad news. There's some bad news here and some hard things that we're going to walk through that we see in this passage. But um, one commentator I read this week said that this vision really is a nightmare that turns into a daydream. And I like that description for this passage in, in Daniel 7. Have you ever had a situation in your life that was a living nightmare that turned into a daydream? For instance, let's say you were going through something in your life that was giving you great fear, great anxiety. You were stressed out about a situation, but a, a development occurred, right? A decision was made, a, a solution was offered, and then suddenly that incredibly difficult problem went away because everything was solved, everything was fixed. While you're thinking of your story, I'd like to share mine with you. And to share mine, we got to go back in time. This is over 20 years ago. I was five years old when my brother was nine. About four years of difference between us. And it was a summer day, very hot, maybe just like today. And my brother and I were playing in our house. And parents, I know you guys don't experience this, but sometimes during the summer, your kids get on your nerves. Is they're with you a lot? And so what do you parents normally say when the kids are in the house getting on parents' nerves? Go outside and, and play. But my mom actually had one better idea. She said, go out in the pasture behind your house and play. You see, on the back line of our property, the house we grew up in, there was a barbed wire fence and then this pasture that just went on, as far as I knew, forever. And she said, go, why don't y'all just don't go in the woods that we have or don't go in the backyard. Go in this pasture and y'all just go explore it. My brother and I thought it was a good idea. And so we went. Again, I'm five. He's nine. And we romped all over that pasture just for hours, just looked at all these incredible things. There were cows. We found some barns. We found a pond, all these different things. You know, that was kind of fun, just exploring. And then we decided, well, we better head back to the house. And so we walked back into the woods and kept walking, kept walking. We couldn't find the house. And we got a little bit alarmed, but we thought, okay, this will be fine. We'll, you know, try a couple different places. Again, I'm just kind of following my brother wherever he tells me to go, which I've learned he has a terrible sense of direction, just <laughs> awful. We came to a barbed wire fence. And I've had this conversation with my mother about this uh, situation of us getting lost in the woods, trying to figure out why she sent us off to die. I'm just kidding. But her defense is always, I thought y'all would have enough sense to follow the fence back to the house. If you ever got lost, you would just follow the fence home. We didn't have that much sense. At least my brother didn't. 
who is now an electrical engineer. That's beside the point. And he said to me, Liam, to get home, we got to crawl under the fence and go back home. I said, okay. So we crawled under that fence. We walked for a little while for longer, came to another fence, crawled under that fence, came to another fence, crawled under that fence three or four more times. And we really started to panic when it started to get dark. I remember those thoughts coming into my head of, we're going to be on the news, you know, kind of thing. We were lost. We were very, very lost. And I just assumed it was our house, then just unexplored America, just Wild West going out that way. I had no idea. And finally, y'all, right when the sun uh, was, was just going down behind the trees, we, we, we came to a field that had three houses. And I remember saying to my brother, let's go to the nicest house. These people look like they could adopt us. Let's go here. But he was like, no, we're going to this house. It looks familiar. And so we walked to that house, and we knocked on the door again. I remember I had cried several times already. We were stressed out. We were panicked. I expected for somebody to open the door wearing a cowboy hat saying, hello, boys, welcome to Oklahoma. Like, that's literally what I thought was going to happen. Door opened, and would you believe it, it was Miss Gwen. Now, Miss Gwen was a four-foot-ten children's church worker at our church. Sweetest lady, probably ever walked this planet. And I remember when she opened that door, my fear and my worry and my anxiety melted away. Because I saw Miss Gwen. And I knew when I saw her, we were going to be okay. Turns out, we had only gone about a mile from our house. They called our parents. They came and they got us. And I just, all the stress, all the anxiety of being lost. And then I saw Miss Gwen's face, and I felt so much better. And church, we have seen shadows of Christ throughout the book of Daniel. We've talked about him as the suffering servant who was sent into exile. We've talked about him in Daniel chapter 2 as the rock that's growing into the great mountain. We've talked about Christ and through Daniel and the lion's den, how our king rose from the grave. But we're actually going to get to see the person of Jesus today. And we see all these incredible things describing sin and the power of the beast and all of these kingdoms of the world. But the Ancient of Days sits on the throne, and we're told about his plan to give all kingdoms and all dominion and all people to the Son of Man. And when this happens, church, when we see Christ on the throne, all of our fear, all of our anxiety can melt away because Christ is king. Maybe you didn't see Christ in this passage as we read it. I can't wait to show you him. As we walk through this passage, I want to show you three different characters or three different players in this passage. I said first, this vision, this dream that Daniel has kind of starts more like a nightmare. And we see it in the first few verses. What does he see first? First, he sees the four beasts. And I want us to talk a little bit first this morning about the four beasts that he sees in this passage, we see, uh, just kind of going really quickly in verse 4, he sees the first one come out of the sea. It says it's like a lion, but with the wings of an eagle. And then in verse 5, he sees another beast, a second one. It says it resembles a bear. Notice how he's saying, this is not a lion. This is not a bear. This is something different, but it just kind of looks like these Animals. Verse 6, he sees the third one. He looks like a, a leopard but has wings. And then on the, the verse 7 with the fourth beast, he doesn't even try to describe it. He's like, look, this is not like anything else I've ever seen. But he tells us that it has iron teeth. And he describes these four things. Now, when we read passages like this, a four weird-looking beasts coming out of the ocean, we all just think, I hate prophecy. 
and we want to move on, right? Because this is hard stuff. But it's important, church, just to let the Bible interpret the Bible. And we're given the interpretation of this passage later in this chapter. Did you notice that? In verse 17, Daniel walks up to somebody in his vision. He says, what's the deal with the beasts? And he tells us in verse 17, it's interpreted for us. It says, these great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who arise from the earth. He says that these four beasts in your dream that you had that looked so horrible, they were powers of the earth. They were kings of the earth or kingdoms of the earth. And so they represent four successive kingdoms that are coming in the future. Does this sound familiar to anybody else who's been studying the book of Daniel with us? Anybody remember a, a dream Nebuchadnezzar had in Daniel chapter 2? Nebuchadnezzar did not dream of four beasts, but he dreamed of an extraordinary, shiny statue that was made up of four different parts. And Daniel interpreted that dream for Nebuchadnezzar and said that the four different metals or the four different parts of the statue represent four different kingdoms that will arise from the earth. And we know that Daniel is receiving the same information Nebuchadnezzar was. It's just packaged a little differently. Nebuchadnezzar sees a shiny, beautiful statue. Daniel sees four horrific beasts. And I think that this leads us to ask a very important question that we can apply to our lives. Why did Daniel see four disgusting, nasty beasts and Nebuchadnezzar see a shiny statue? And I believe the answer to that question is all about perspective. Have you guys ever seen a lenticular printing before? I know you have, you just don't know you have. Let me explain to you what a lenticular printing is. It's a picture, maybe up on a wall, or, or maybe you've seen it somewhere at a store, but it, it changed, the image changes to spend, depending on where you're standing. If you're standing, let's say, okay, y'all are just have to bear with me, on my right to the picture, right? Let's say it's a, it's a person of a baseball player, right? And they're kind of back, ready to swing. And then as you move, the picture actually changes, and you can watch that batter go through his swing, right? Have you guys ever seen this before, or maybe you're standing to the right of the picture, and it's a picture of, of Sanford Stadium, right? And then as you go, you actually see Ugga come out right through the shadows. And as you get on the left side, it's a different kind of picture. You guys know what I'm talking about? We're tracking with what this printing is. It's all a matter of perspective. I was actually reading about these printings, and the way they do that, I thought this was so cool. They print the picture not flat, but with ridges. So as you're standing on the, the right side, you're seeing one side of the ridge, but then as you walk, it begins to change, and then your perspective changes, and you see another image. And I believe that the reason why uh, Nebuchadnezzar saw a statue and Daniel saw a beast was a matter of perspective. Let's play this out. Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan king, God revealing to him what's going to happen. This is a pagan king, someone who's obsessed with his own power, someone who's rejected God. We studied about it in Daniel chapter 4. He believed he had built all of this incredible kingdom. He sees, God reveals to him these kingdoms. He sees a shiny statue. Then over here we have Daniel, servant of Yahweh, living in exile, his only hope is the kingdom of God, and he sees the kingdom of the world, and God reveals the kingdoms of the world to him as four disgusting beasts. Interesting. Difference of perspective. See, the world sees empires and cities and 
sinful lifestyles and the power of this world. The kingdom of this world is a shiny, beautiful statue. It's not the way our God sees it. He sees it as beast. Leads me to ask a question. When you look at the powers and the pleasures of this world, do you see a statue or do you see a beast? You see, this has been the work of Satan since the beginning. It's to twist and pervert God's word, and it's to cloud your vision so that you see beastly things as pretty things. This is what Satan's been doing since the beginning. Let's remember Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3. Satan comes into the garden as a what? As a serpent, as a beast. And he's a good salesman. You got to give it to him because he gets Adam and Eve to crave the one thing that will bring about death and separation from God. And he does it by saying, if you take this, your life will be better. Satan is so good at conning us. As, at deceiving us. Church, we're being duped when we look at the world and the things of the world and say, that's a shiny statue that I want made out of solid gold. And God says, no, that's a beastly thing that will destroy you. God created us in his image to live and to rule over the beasts of this earth. And church, when we choose sin, we're not ruling and reigning like Christ wants us to. No, we're acting like animals what happened to Adam and Eve. We see it happen in the next generation too, Cain and Abel, right? They both bring sacrifices to God. Abel's sacrifice is accepted by God. Cain's is not. Cain is mad about the situation. And so God talks to Cain in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. He said, if you do well, will your face not be cheerful? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. He says, I created you not to be a beast, but to be a human. And I want you to know that sin is like a lion crouching at your door. Son of man, pick up your sword and run sin through. He says, rule and reign. Cain picked up a sword, but it wasn't to run, his, to run sin through. It was to run his brother through. And he chose not to be human, but to act like an animal in church. You can trace this theme throughout the entire Bible. When we choose sin, we choose the side of the beast. One more example, and it's from our study in Daniel. Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar continues to reject God. And what was Nebuchadnezzar's punishment in Daniel chapter 4? Let me read it for you in case if you've forgotten. Daniel 4.33, immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people, ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Such an unusual punishment that God was showing him, I've called you to be a man, I've called you in the image of God to reflect my character to the world, and you haven't done that. You want to be a beast? Fine, go be a beast. Difficult question for, for you and for me. What are we seeing in our lives wrong? What looks desirable? What looks like it'll bring us satisfaction that is of this world? What has Satan got you seeing like a shiny statue? You know, 1 John chapter 2, John wrote to us and told us that it's probably going to fall into three categories. It's going to fall into the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, or the boastful pride 
of life. And church, I will not lie to you. There are things in our world that will look really good in the beginning. But at the end, they're very bitter. That's exactly what Solomon said when he wrote to his son in Proverbs 5, talking about sexual sin specifically. He said, for the lips of an adulteress drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. He said, I'm not going to lie to you. You're going to be tempted with sex, and it's going to look really, really good. But if you take and eat of that, if you taste of that, verse 5, her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold, Sheol. Oh, God, transform our minds so that we see the world the way you see the world, so we could forsake sin. Church, if we see things, a shiny statue, we're being lied to and we're being deceived. First, he sees the beast. Secondly, I want us to talk in verses 9 and 10 about the Ancient of Days. Let's talk second about the Ancient of Days. So we see all of these beasts that come out of the sea. They represent the four kingdoms that are coming. We know them to be Babylon, right? Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome. It's interesting in, the, in Daniel uh, chapter 2 with the statue, we're told that Rome represented as the fourth beast was made of iron. Notice in verse 7 that the fourth beast had large iron teeth. In verse 8, it's, it's probably worth mentioning, there are 10 horns which represent 10 kings in the future, and then there's a little horn is very different, and we know this to be the Antichrist, someone coming in the future, the human that Satan will set up to take over the world, who will be judged, and the Son of Man will take the kingdom instead. And then in verses 9 and 10, the scene changes to something very different. We no longer see beasts coming out of the sea. We see the Ancient of Days. Read verses 9 and 10 with me. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was white like snow. And the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. And myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. We're talking about these three characters, the beast, the ancient of days, want to guess the third one's going to be the son of man coming in just a minute. But I want to show you just how different this ancient of days is from these beasts. Beasts were described as horrific, right? Destructive and very incredible and very impressive in their own right, but just a force of darkness and the Ancient of Days is described as something different. First, let's just deal with that term, Ancient of Days. Who is this? Um, our, our language does not do a good job of communicating the Ancient of Days title very well. It literally means older than days in the Hebrews. That, and we we kind of try to make it a title because it is a title, but Ancient of Days kind of sound weird, but literally it means older than days. We have a saying in our culture, right, older than dirt, Right? This person's older than days, which is even older than dirt. That's really old. Who's the only person who's older than days? God. Specifically here, God the Father. It says, I kept looking until thrones were set up. The Ancient of Days took his seat. If you're taking notes, we're just going to kind of rapid fire some things about the Ancient of Days. First, he's on the throne. He's on the throne. The beasts are on the throne. They're coming into the world wreaking havoc and being destructive. They're not on the throne. Cody's on the throne. It says his vesture was like white snow. This is his clothing. 
He's in all white. What does this communicate? He is holy, right? These beasts, you think about their fur matted with blood and just disgusting. No, the Ancient of Days is in all white. He's holy. He's righteous. Let's keep going. And the hair of his head was like pure wool. This communicates righteousness, yes, but also wisdom. God's a cotton top. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. This is just a quick note about God's throne that that is explained more in Ezekiel chapter 1 and 2, but this is a reference to the Ophanim. Don't get tripped up on that word. It's just Hebrew that means wheels. But in the book of Ezekiel, God's wheels on his throne are described in great detail. They're wheels of fire, and there's actually a wheel within a wheel. It's kind of like a, a, I don't know, a cylindrical thing that the angels push around, and it's really cool because it communicates God's eternality and his infinity, and they can actually push the throne around without him ever having to turn. God owns a zero-turn lawnmower. Really cool. Just impressive. Its wheels were a burning fire, wheels within wheels. Go read Ezekiel. The river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. In the Hebrew, that's literally a thousand thousand. One million people were serving him, were attending him. And myriads upon myriads. Had to go look that word up this week. It means a countless number. So Daniel is overwhelmed by the, the beauty of God and just the righteousness and the holiness. And wow, the wheels on his throne are really cool too. But look at all the people around him. I went to the Passion Conference maybe two years ago, and it was in Mercedes-Benz. And they started the whole conference off by singing Christ Be Magnified with just an acoustic guitar. And we did that a couple of weeks ago. David did a great job right here for family meeting. And we may have had 60, 70 people, and that was sweet. There were 70,000 people there singing Christ Be Magnified. And I mean, they backed off the acoustic, they backed off the microphones, and you could hear 70,000 people singing Christ Be Magnified from the altar of my life. And I mean, it would just blow you away. This is telling us is that was less than a tenth of the people who would be around the throne worshiping our God. You can see why Daniel was pale after he saw all these things. He's just kind of in awe of the scene. It says the court sat and the books were open. Now we're kind of learning why we've gathered together in this dream. Somebody's about to get judged. And it tells us, Verse 11, then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. Now, we've already talked about four beasts, but he says the beast was slain. Now, this is Satan himself. He's telling us that court is going to convene and Satan will be judged and his body will be slain and he will be given over to burning fire, not just the kingdoms of the world, but Satan himself. I think this is important just to notice the fight between Satan and God was not very good. I don't think this would sell in Hollywood, right? It's not much of a, of a final fight scene. The books were open. Satan's judged. He's killed. Church, that's important for us to recognize. The fight between God and Satan is not dualistic. 
Do you know what I mean when I say that dualistic? It's this idea of light and darkness are equal forces in our world. And it's almost like the yin-yang, and, and we're just looking for balance between good and evil. Church, that's not reality. The reality is there is one creator, and everything else is creation, and creation cannot stand against the creator. And so he will be judged, and it won't be a fight. There will not, not be resistance against the ancient of days. The beast and the antichrist in verses 11 and 12 we see are judged, and it's not even a fight. Our God's amazing. I put in my notes right here, it'd be like Liam Hardy fighting Mike Tyson. Just would not end well for Mike Tyson. <laughs> Don't put that on YouTube, Dylan. <laughs> and then finally, we get to see Jesus. Verses 13 and 14. You just, just get in Daniel's headspace for a minute. This is a guy who was taken out of his homeland as a young kid, put in service in Babylon. He's, he's seen so many incredible things. Just holding on to the kingdom of God. I mean, his life has been hard. And everything he's seen says that the king is not on the throne. Uh, Satan's winning. Uh, you, there's no hope for you. And then he gets to see the Ancient of Days, and the Son of Man. Verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Who is the Son of Man? I want to compare him for a moment to the other two characters we've looked at. The Son of Man is not the beast's. In this dream, remember, the beasts represent four different kings. These are kings of the world who have fallen to sin, and they have become destructive, horrific beasts because of their actions and the way they rule and reign on this earth. And the, the Son of Man coming here isn't a beast. He's human. I'm borrowing this, Scott, from Alistair Begg. But he said, he's like a Son of Man in the sense that he is everything a man should be and more. He's like a son of man. This is one who can rule the way God designed us and intended us to rule. He's like a son of man, but he's also not the ancient of days. There's a distinction here between the son of man and the ancient of days, and he is given the kingdom. And this led rabbis, namely the Pharisees and the Sadducees, when this came out in bookstores across America, to, to argue about, is the Son of Man human or is he divine? And they spent all this time arguing, well, he's one that's given the kingdom. We know God would rule over us, so it must be God. They say, no, he's like a Son of Man. He's not like the Ancient of Days. This guy looks like somebody we might run into at Walmart. Something different. They were Sadducees, Pharisees. They were both right, and they were both wrong. Jesus, the Son of Man, 
would be both God and man, the only mediator between God and man, the one given the kingdom, and the one presented before the Ancient of Days. Now, people go back and forth on has verses 13 and 14 happened yet, or are they going to happen in the future? That's not a huge issue. We just put our hope in the fact that it is going to happen. Amen. But church, I do believe that this happened either between Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection or shortly after his ascension. I believe that because, even, and I've even leaned toward the, before the resurrection, that Jesus came and he was sacrificed and his blood was poured out on the altar in heaven and then he was presented before the ancient days. Then he rose from the grave because in Matthew 28, before he ascended, he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He says, I've already got all authority. I've already been presented before the ancient days. And what that means, church, is that this is a reality we live in today. We talked about in Daniel chapter 2, the statue has been destroyed. It was destroyed on the cross. Christ has been given the kingdom. And he's called us to go and make disciples. Pause with me for just a moment. I want us to just take a 30,000-foot view of this vision, if we can. Because some of us may be like, Liam, you lost me at the four beasts. I'm going to be honest. The kingdoms of this world and sin are going to have their day. And they're going to wreak a lot of havoc in your life and in mine. We're not home. Remember the book of Daniel. We're in exile. They're going to have their day. But in the darkest moments, we must recognize the Ancient of Days is never threatened. And he's never off the throne. And he has a plan. And that is to give the entire world to the Son of Man. Do you know that when Jesus came... And we have a record of his ministry in the Gospels, and his favorite name for himself was the Son of Man. Jesus didn't call himself Jesus. He didn't call himself Christ a whole lot. He didn't even call himself the Son of God as much as he called himself the Son of Man, which is a reference to this passage. And every time he claimed to be the Son of Man, he was saying, I am the one who will receive the kingdom from God the Father. He's saying, I will be the king of the entire world. Now, many of us reading the Gospels, maybe not with a Daniel 7 view, wouldn't recognize the weight of the claim of Jesus when he claims to be the Son of Man. But let me read to you Matthew 26, verses 62 uh, through 66. This is Jesus on trial before Caiaphas. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, remember the high priest would have known the Old Testament. He said, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Verse 64, you have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Verse 65, then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? What do you think? He asked the crowd, and they said, he's worthy of death. They killed Jesus because he claimed to be the one in Daniel chapter 7 who would receive the kingdom from the Father. Not only that, he was saying, hey, this is about to happen. He said, from this point on, from now on, we're right at the doorstep. You're going to see the Son of Man at the right hand of the Father. He's about to receive kingdom. 
Church, this, this needs to be the defining marker of your life. Do you know that's really the most important question you'll ever answer in your life is who's the son of man of Daniel 7? Who is the one who's going to receive the kingdom from Father, this is why Jesus said in Matthew 11, verse 6, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Jesus said he's the way to the Father. There's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus. And that's why I want to, I want to just kind of lead you to, to ask three questions about this passage. The first one is one I asked you when we studied Daniel chapter 2. Whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? I don't know if you remember, we talked about this in Daniel chapter 2, but I asked you, were you on the side of the statue or were you on the side of the rock? Are you on the side of the kingdoms of this world or are you on the side of the kingdom of God? As you make decisions and you live your life and you have decisions to gratify your flesh or deny self and take up your cross and follow Jesus, which side are you on? We can come here every single day or every Sunday and sing Christ is King. Monday rolls around, we start living it. And this is why there are going to be people in the kingdom of God one day. They're going to stand for Christ and they're going to say, we, we went to church. We were in small group. He'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Because we can say with our lips all day long, he's king. We don't live it out. Church, it ain't true not true. Whose side are you on? I ask you, are you on the side of the beasts or are you on the side of the Son of Man? Which side are you on? And I just want to encourage you. I know it's a cost to come over to the side of the Son of Man. It looks like dying to self. It looks harsh. It looks hard. It looks like somehow you're not going to be satisfied. You're going to give up things that are so comfortable. I want you to just look at the things in your life that you're holding on to, your addictions, your sin patterns, and I want you just to think, I don't see those right. I'm believing a lie about those things. I keep coming back again and again to those things. Peter says, like a dog returning to his vomit. I need to forsake it. Because it's not what I think it is. It's not producing life. It's not producing satisfaction. It is a path to death. The side of life is on the side of the crucified king. And so it's going to look like death in the beginning. Church, it will yield a bountiful harvest of life. Second question I want to ask you is, is Jesus the Son of Man? Daniel 7 tells us that this one is coming who will be presented before the Ancient of Days. Do you believe this is Jesus? And you could say, yes, I believe it's Jesus because of his teachings or his claims or his healings. We believe this is Jesus. Why? Because of the resurrection. Because he was killed. He did die. He's not dead right now. God raised him from the dead. And this proved to us he is the Son of Man. He's paid for your sin. I'm going to ask the band if they'll come up while I ask you this second one, kind of a two parter, really. Is Christ your king? If you believe Christ is the Son of Man, he should be your king. For many of us, there's a disconnect there. Sure, I would agree when I read the scripture. Yeah, Daniel said, this is Jesus. Wow, Daniel 7, 7, 13, that's Jesus. Problem is, I'm just not living it out. 
I would love to die one day and y'all have my funeral. I think I want Jason Lewis to sing You Keep Hope Alive. Y'all heard me. And I don't want to write my, my funeral sermon by any stretch, but I would love for people to say, you know, Liam Hardy had a king and it was evident in the way he lived. There was something about him that was different. He wasn't being ruled. He wasn't sad. He was joyful. But you could just tell he had a king. And heaven should not be a change of authority. When I get to heaven one day and I suddenly start letting Christ become king, then I think it's a little too late. My death should not be a transfer of power. I need to give Jesus control before I die. I want that to be said of my life. I want it to be said of this church. Maybe somebody's coming to, to this church for the first time today. Maybe somebody's going to hear about our church. Maybe they don't even come in this place on a Sunday morning, but they come to the Easter egg hunt. They come to fall festival. And they just walk away from your life. It's just at work. Something different about Ryan. Something different about Chris. They have a king. I want him to. Church, when we live this way, it is powerful. I don't know what you're going through today, but maybe somebody here this morning just needs to hear. Christ is on the throne. And you feel like that there's not a future after verse 8. I want you to be comforted. Ancient of days on the throne. Son of man has received the kingdom. And this is our hope. Amen, church. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we just take a moment to reflect on the weight of your plan. God, I pray that Daniel 7 would not be a a future reality or a past reality. God, we would see the present impact of your word. God, that you would just, as as we we surrender and we open our eyes, God, we look to you, you would just show us our next steps of surrender and worship, God, that we would be in tune with your heart. Lord, we'd be submitting to you as king. God, we'd be on mission for you every step. God, I pray for the people here this morning to be encouraged, God, and we be challenged by your spirit. You do a work in them, God. Just eliminate all darkness and all these deceptions that we've believed for so long. God, just show us a lot of your truth. God, that we would stop living for ourselves. Live on purpose. God, have your way. We give you the authority. You are our king be glorified in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.